Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 47 is Jason Faulkner. As a very young person, he briefly was a member of the Three O'Clock for their last album, and then vaulted to fame as a member of Jellyfish on their debut album in 1990. He then went on to form The Greys with John Bryan, a man whose movie soundtracks you've undoubtedly heard. He put out his first one-man band solo album in 1996. Jason Faulkner presents Author Unknown, and you are right now listening to the opening track of that, I Live. He has since recorded several more one-man band albums, and used this technique to be a producer and arranger for other artists as well. Now, the immediate impetus for our interview here, his most recently released album is a collaboration with another famous one-man band artist, R. Stevie Moore. We're going to be discussing Sincero Amore from Make It Be, just released in 2017 but recorded in 2013. We'll also talk about The Lie in Me from his most recent solo album, 2009's All Quiet on the Noise Floor. Then look back to The Greys with the song Both Belong from their one album Rochambeau, 1994. And we'll conclude with another track from Make It Be, Horror Show. For more information about Jason's various projects, check out jasonfaulkner.net. We can transition from that, from your first solo album, to the first discussion song, Sincero Amore, 2017 Make It Be, co-written with Stevie Moore. I had thought that I was going to be interviewing Stevie for a couple of weeks there, so that was my first, you know, I'd heard his name before, but I had not taken the time to listen to much of his stuff, so I had made my way through a dozen or so, which is, of course, about 0.002% of his <laughs> output. Yeah, exactly. You know, I know that like you, that he's the history of being the one man band thing and not wanting to compromise or wait on other people for the most part to get things done. So how did this collaboration come about? Yeah, I first became aware of Stevie. There was a record shop in LA that was going out of business and I saw this odd 10 inch with kind of a Xeroxed cover and the cover was the Beatles revolver artwork, but it had this odd looking fellow that had covered most of their faces and most of the background people's faces as well with his own. And I just was instantly smitten with that, but also like, who the hell would do that? That's incredible. Of course, I bought that, took it home, fell in love with it. That started my, what seemed to be, you know, my one man fan club of this guy that I had never heard of. And I didn't know anybody else who had heard of him. So a few years later, I guess I've known that kid Ariel Pink for a long time. And we were driving around in my car and he was playing me some new stuff and it was just so strange and, and amazing. And I had one question for him and that was, what are you into? Cause I can't really gather anything from what you're playing me. I, I can't, there's no points of reference for me. And he said, well, I'm really into this guy, RCV Moore. And I just was like, what? Cause that's the first time I had heard that name spoken out loud by someone other than myself. And so, you know, we bonded on Stevie and he was surprised that I knew him and, and vice versa. And so, then fast forward many years from that. Well, I guess then what happened was Stevie reached out to me first. Maybe it was even back in the MySpace days. I got a message from our Stevie Moore. And I was just like, what? Also, it hadn't dawned on me that you could, this new social media or whatever these things were, something where you could actually like reach out to somebody you didn't know and somebody that you were a fan of. So when Stevie reached out to me and was just like, Hey, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of yours. And I was like, Oh my God, like I'm a, a huge fan of yours. So we just started becoming this kind of pen pal mutual admiration society. And then uh, again, fast forward quite a few years, he and Ariel were going to do a, some recording together here in LA at, at Ariel's place. And they, I guess they started working on stuff and quickly I started getting these texts from both of them saying, Hey, can we come over to your house and record? Cause you know, you have like a proper studio in your little house. That's how that Ku Klux Glam thing came about. I see that was released in 2012. Was that recorded shortly before that? Cause I know your sessions with him were 
also 2012, right? No, I think our sessions were 2013. It was definitely at least a year after. So yeah, that was released very, at least the seven inch was released within a couple of months of doing that. And that all of that stuff was done in like two days. Everything that comprises that album, Ku Klux Klan, which, you know, a lot of it is kind of joking around and just little kind of soundbite things. But yeah, that was done super quickly. And basically, while we were doing that, Stevie and I just kind of looked at each other and said, we should do one of these as well. We should do a record together. So that's how it came about. And about a year later, I guess, he was out at my house for, I guess it was two weeks. It looked like a lot of that album is he had songs lying around and you were sort of being producer, but then you've got ones that you're jamming on guitar together and you've got this song that's an actual full-blooded co-write. Was he bringing in material for the most part or how did that generally work? About half the record is us revisiting his back catalog. So I Hate People, I Love Us, We Love Me, I'm the Best For You, If You See K, and Play Myself Some Music. Those are all what I consider to be classic R.C.V. Moore songs, some of them going back as far as the late 70s and early 80s. Quarterly, it makes sense. I had not noticed those exact titles in the older records that I was listening to, but I noticed certainly a very strong stylistic similarity as opposed to something like Stamps. So right. was that one of the new ones? Yeah, Stamps was written on the spot. He pretty much wrote that whole thing like right as we were sitting together. And then the second song on the record, Another Day Slips Away Yet. So that's me doing my one-man band thing to an R. Stephen Moore song. That song, and for the most part, Sincero Amore as well, and Play Myself Some Music, those songs were done basically just me. So Sincero Amore is one where we... It's kind of an oddball on the record in that it's probably the most sort of traditional in a way. It's kind of the most easily digested. And part of that is just, I feel like the only thing that we were talking about before we started writing that or, or as an impetus to write it was kind of like early Beatles stuff, you know, kind of like in my life, that kind of simple kind of 60s kind of ballad. That was at least what we talked about for a second. Of course, nothing ever turns out like you think it will. And it doesn't really sound like any anything like that kind of tune or recording. He was leaving. I think that was one of the last things we did. I did the drums. He did the bass. And then I started doing the guitars. But before I really got into any of the fancy little kind of chimey guitars that are in the verses and stuff, I wanted to get like a background vocal answer kind of thing that's in the choruses. We wanted to get that with both of our voices because he was going to be leaving. So we wrote those lyrics together. But the challenging thing when I then later wrote the entire lead vocal and sang it was we had these answer lyrics, but no main lyric. So that's really backwards. <laughs> and a challenging thing to then write a lyric that is basically answering the answers thematically and also as far as uh, kind of slips in and out of different cases. So that was really difficult and took me a little while to suss that out.
how about this one? I can't wait for us to do this. Maybe tomorrow. All right. So details why. So I, I understand this is all this George Harrison-esque. Is it actually a slide? I saw you play it live and it was not a slide. Just the opening riff. Yeah. Okay. It is slide, and that's Stevie playing that. There's a lot of stuff that I do when I record something where I have a lot of things kind of ghosting things, mm-hmm. ghosting certain other instruments. So you don't really hear that it might have quite a bit of support from other things. And there's a ton of that on this Make It Be record where it just sounds like one thing, but it's actually like quite a few things supporting it, which kind of gives it this, you know, my favorite kind of overdubs on records are, are where you don't really know what it is. Yeah, there's quite a bit of that on this record. But yeah, this is a pretty direct recording, kind of classic. Yeah, and it also seems to be something that you use consistently to differentiate the sections that, you know, you've got, what, three choruses in the in the song, and there's a little more, you know, maybe added background vocals, or you've got the slimy lead guitar, but it, sort of different levels of support throughout. It's not the more obvious, like putting more stuff on top, it's putting more stuff underneath. Yeah, exactly. I'm one of those guys that I really believe in a song building That's one thing I kind of loathe about the way a lot of people make records now is they'll just, somebody will play a chorus part and then the person just like copies, pastes that in all the choruses. And I'm like, no, 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 you got to play the whole song because you should be building, you should be doing, you know, there's an emotional thing that happens when you're recording a song. There should be. So the final chorus, guitar, vocal, hi-hat part, whatever, shouldn't necessarily be the same as the first one all of my stuff is always performed all the way through and sure there's some edits but not always that many and yeah there's lots of things that kind of i keep adding to things to kind of keep it building and keep this momentum surging you know you just have to program the uh, artificial intelligence in the drum machine to, to get slightly more complex as it goes so you can say i want a 15 percent more complex when we get to course three That's coming up very soon, my friend. (laughs) Unfortunately, before driverless cars, there will be that plug-in, I'm sure. The humanizer. I get the sense when Stevie is recording on his own that he's just lightning fast. I mean, either that or I didn't really understand, you know, with these older albums, whether he's putting out a song in the evening or it's just the fact that he's doing it all the time. And so he takes the normal time, you know, three or four days to finish a song. When we're looking at a song like this, like how long would this take you typically to put this kind of thing together in your one man band style or when you were together, you said this whole, the whole album was just a couple of weeks. We're both very quick. Stevie is definitely just super quick. Doesn't really have a bad idea in the studio, which is remarkable, but we're both very instinctual kind of musicians. I think the longest time I spend on stuff is mixing. And I don't spend a crazy amount of time doing that, but I I am very into the minutia and sonic detail. And I don't want something to sound too good or too bad. My whole thing is kind of like this mid-fi area that I live in, or I like to say hi-fi for 1974. Because oddly enough, when I look through my vast record collection, my favorite sounding records are all recorded in 73 and 74. Uh, as far as the sound of the record. So I spend more time mixing than I do recording. Recording is incredibly quick for me. I mean, I, you know, I might, might take me 10 passes of a guitar solo kind of thing. If I'm doing, if I'm doing a solo or something that's kind of solo-esque that might be supporting a vocal or something, I might take quite a few passes at that and spend, you know, 30, 45 minutes kind of crafting this part. But that's because I started it with nothing and I'm just kind of like riffing and riffing until I figure something out that I like and then I fine tune that and then it's done. And I don't do a lot of going back and like, I could do that better or no, no, just I, I believe in like kind of the moment that happened and not messing with that at a, at a later date. So in each pass, you're noodling through the whole song or at least the whole relevant section rather than like, you know, if I'm going to record a doing that what you're describing, writing and recording a bass part or particularly a guitar part, which I'm not as good at leads, then I will mm-hmm. do a lot of punch-ins, at least at first. And, you know, maybe then feel like, okay, now I can actually play the whole song and do another couple of passes to get the whole thing. But to start with, the composing really is done in minute detail, kind of breaking out of the moment because I'm just really considering how am I going to get to verse two to the chorus? But it sounds like your fine-grained instincts come in later in that process or maybe just this pass is mostly paying attention to what I'm doing in this section or how does that work you're describing being acutely attentive to detail but yet being in the moment and wanting to go through the whole song I do do things kind of as far as like sectionally okay I mean it depends on what it is but I guess when I said that I meant mainly like the skeleton of the song like the drums bass and whatever main rhythm instrument there is I, I think that should be performed through the whole thing so for instance on Sincero Amore the verses 
have these, it's kind of like my favorite part of the song is these little chimey Knights of the Round Table, little tremolo guitars that are, yeah. <laughs> that are these kind of dainty little things that happen. It's mostly just chorus, right? Or what are you doing to make that? It's a vibrato. Okay. And I think that's all my 60s Gretsch duo jet, which has this really cool kind of like scratchy chime to it. I also like there to be things that I didn't consider that end up making it onto records. And so I'll intentionally, well, going back to that verse. So I probably just played, I got a kind of a sound and then I just started playing along and doing this because I was probably originally going to just kind of strum those chords with that sound. Then maybe I hit the downbeat of the verse and let it ring and then started doing this kind of arpeggiated stuff. And it just kind of turned into this medieval kind of thing. And again, I could have gone back and said, okay, that's a great idea. Now make an insane part, make the inversions and all the different passing tones and harmonic stuff, make that even more extremely interesting. But I don't generally do that. I kind of like documenting my instincts, whether they be the best concept or not. And of course, you know, I don't let something slide if I think it's rubbish, but if I think it's really cool, there's part of me that's almost interested in doing something that's maybe not even like me. It's this weird thing. And it's kind of the only way I can explain how maybe my records don't sound like one guy playing everything. It's because I'm kind of considering what someone else would do, but it's an imaginary person. It's me. For instance, like when I was younger, I used to, if I was doing a bass part, I would always in the back of my mind have that guy, Pete Farndon from the first pretenders band in my mind. And I would be like, okay, well, I'm not trying to do something like he would do, but what would that guy do? Because he was probably without a doubt, like not as adept of a, of a musician as I am, but he's infinitely cooler than I will ever be. So there's kind of this thing where I learned how to insert other people in my process in a weird way. And again, it's all imaginary, but they're there. David Bowie has always kind of been there as like, what would David Bowie do? But it's again, it's not like it's not any kind of emulation. It's just like a imaginary passenger or imaginary band member. And again, I do think that that's how I get away with doing the one man band thing as successfully as people tell me I do. Well, one of the places where that would be especially obvious, and again, maybe this is not the best example because there's two of you playing on it, but even just really wherever there's fills. So even right at the beginning, you've got his little riff and then it's answered by, well, you've got some acoustic arpeggiation and some electric arpeggiation. And if you're doing both of those, especially in quick succession, they're probably going to match up pretty much exactly. Whereas if you're doing it with a live band and the sounds, it has a very live sort of feel to me or intimate, maybe then they're not exactly going to match. If it's not actually rhythmically off, <laughs> there's at least something that right. is slightly jarring. I don't notice that as a general trait that stands out in your work that you purposefully jar with yourself. It all seems very arranged such that, well, I guess we'll see more as we get to more songs. I mean, this might reflect part of what you were talking about as that you don't want to do just one thing. You want to support it with whether it's a harmonized other instruments or there's more voices there. And part of what makes that stand out is if, and I think we have examples of this in this song where you've got guitar parts that there's a second guitar added and it's doing something just slightly different not just harmonic yeah. it's not boston it's not layered harmonized guitar it's not queen but it's as if there was another player there answering in some slightly different way yeah and it's true what you said about the kind of live thing i mean that's part of what i think the charm is in doing things quickly and not laboring over like once it's a cool idea just commit Yes, everyone could go back and probably make the tone a little better, make the part a little more perfect, but that's never been interesting to me. And I know that sounds weird maybe for some people to hear because a lot of people view me as like this insane perfectionist who makes these very concise recordings. But the funny thing is, is if you really listen to each individual thing, if, if you can pick them out, there's a lot of kind of cavalier, off the cuff, non laborious, detail happening. And I will often play something like, you know, I'll stand up, for instance, when I'm in the studio and like move around like I'm playing live, even when there's nobody there, because I want it to feel I want it to sound like it's live. 
I'm like really happy with how Sincero and Amore came out. I do think it stands out on the record as certainly the most simple, probably one of the most simple compositions, but simple in a good way, like just direct. Well, simple, but yet it has this glaring, you know, we're doing the intro in what G sharp and then jumping to B for the main verse. So right there, that makes it not like in my life or something that it's got this other tonal sense to it. They're almost supposed to sound for me like hard edits, like they're recorded at different times. And in fact, there is a an effect that I put across the stereo bus in the choruses where the whole thing has a bit of a verb added to it. And then that cuts off at the downbeat and the final beat of the verse. So there you go. I mean, that, that says it all. Those are meant to be like juxtaposed sections that are kind of like just retrofitted together because I love that. I love like hard edits. You know, I love when you can hear an outro of a song that you can tell was just kind of butted on where they literally spliced the tape and added something that was recorded at a different time. I absolutely love that. So whether I actually do that or I manufacture that with effects and stuff, that's something that I get off on. Now, so I understand you finished this recording by yourself, but let's say a little about, so you actually wrote these or a lot of the lyrics actually with Stevie. Is he used to writing with people? How does that actually work? I don't think either of us are used to co-writing, but... We had such a natural ease with each other that it was very natural and very very fun to write with him. We didn't write that many words together. So for that song, Sincero Amore, it was just those answer vocals. And, and again, I feel like the angle of that, we wanted to just write kind of like a love song, dare I say, from me and our Stevie Moore. Just a simple love song of longing and insecurity about the status of this relationship or whatever and you know that's a very common theme with me um <laughs> and uh slightly less common but still a common theme with him as well he doesn't have so much intimations in the evergreen in his lyrics that i've that i've noticed that's true no that that's all me uh <laughs> again that was really challenging to write a lead vocal around these almost cut and paste lyrics that we came up as the answers in the choruses well, it certainly forces you when you're dealing with here, dear, disappear. And we're just going to do more rhymes of that. Like, it's not going to get that varied. It's going to more or less stay in the same realm. No Shakespeare. Right. <laughs> no burning spear. <laughs> myth- myth- <laughs> mythological references. Just to, just to fuck things up in the... <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's get our second tune on the floor. Another example here, we can still bring up details of this first one, but The Lie in Me from your last released solo album, at least, All Quiet on the Noise Floor, 2009. Say a few words to introduce it before we play it. This is The Lie in Me. It's a very, uh, I'm singing in falsetto, and it's a very direct love song. Is that enough? I guess this is just what I'm, (laughs) since I picked these. (laughs) Sure. I cannot 
So some more cool texture stuff. I mean, just the fact that you're using the maraca as the hi-hat for the beginning. I like that for some reason that if you're sitting in front of a drum kit, you feel like you should play with both hands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so that song, sonically, like the drums to me sound like the sweet or something. They sound very 70s, dry, kind of crunchy snare drum. But then the chord structure is like, of the at least the chorus, is kind of almost like Gershwin-esque, dare I say. And I just love the kind of juxtaposition of that. There's a bit of a glam thing to the way I'm playing the drums on that tune, but then there's nothing glam rock whatsoever about the tune itself. Yeah, I was trying to figure out the pedigree of that. I'm most familiar with that style through the Alex Chilton solo work, at least the stuff that I especially like, like Thing For You and stuff where he's got these thick gospel chords and is playing the in a sort of similar guitar style. But it sounds like you could also detect little bits of... Hendrix Little Wing or something like it's just wherever guitar rock plus jazz chords come together. No, that's exactly right. I feel like I had that chorus part kind of laying around for years, but no verse that was recorded in a place that I had that was in an area of of LA called Mount Washington. And I was living alone in this house and I had basically just broken up with a very long relationship, like a nine year relationship. And that's probably the most direct lyric that's dealing with the end of that relationship. There is no real lie in me. I guess the lie in me was that I was, I knew that I should have been out of the relationship before I had the balls to do it. 
Yet, ironically, you're saying no one else can see the lie in me, but probably in that situation, everybody can freaking see that you should not be in that relationship. (laughs) Well, yeah, oddly enough, I've thought about this many times. I remember having a party at our house, me and that ex and her friends kind of like, there was just a moment of clarity within this party vibe and atmosphere where they're just like, what are you doing here? (laughs) I was like, is it that obvious? Again, this was a long relationship. So, you know, but as they say, you know, oftentimes we spend twice as long in a relationship as we should when we know that it's broken beyond repair. Yeah, I guess everybody can see it. It's one of those songs that's kind of like, like a lot of my stuff, I usually like to have something pulling at whatever it is that I'm talking about. I like to have something confusing it or something adding depth where there might not be as much depth in the subject or the style of writing. So I will almost intentionally confuse things a little bit. And that's kind of like part of my thing. I should say, I don't enjoy too many things that are just kind of one dimensional. If someone's just kind of saying one thing or the music is just kind of doing one thing, I get bored and I think, Come on, people, try harder. So here it's the hyper legato melody fighting against this, what you describe as a glam rhythm section. That's not even just the huge drums, but the staccato bass stuff. Yeah, the bass stuff is kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of a 60s. That's also just my bass style, the, the palm muted thing. That's, I've been doing that since back in Jellyfish in 90. But yeah, I just love the things that are kind of pulling at what seems to be one thing, and then it's got these other things happening that make it something else or that make it a bit deeper. But The Lie in Me was something where I was just attempting to write this very, I'll use the word direct again, seems to be the word of the day. It was just kind of like a plea to, like I imagined a video or something, or I imagined singing it on TV And just that wonderful thing that you used to see, like, especially a lot of the country guys like Glenn Campbell. And, you know, I just remember the Glenn Campbell show when I was a kid and and him and the guests would just stand there holding their electro voice microphones, just looking at the camera and just singing these emotional pleas to the audience. And I just I love that. That's quite the opposite of most of my catalog and what it evokes. But for this song, I wanted to try something like that. But again, and then you have this kind of explosion solo which is immediately after that middle section which uh, when i was kind of putting that together i was like something about this kind of reminds me of like sandinista era clash and then it goes into this glittery vandergraaf generator you know insanity solo with like three guitars all doing different things soloing Yeah, it's just it's a super fun thing to record. <laughs> Which it makes it a little, a little perverse if you picture, again, that image of the country band or whatever on the stage with the camera right in your face and you're being all sincere. And then if you actually maintained eye contact with the camera while doing that solo, then that would be especially creepy. That's like basically like looking into the camera and masturbating while you're... <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but maybe with like two extra like uh, animatronic arms that do the other... coming out of my back like wings yeah that would be (laughs) actually this is a brilliant video i need to get on it (laughs) the longer you talk to me the more you'll realize there's a ton of contradictions and things that happen with me that are all part of what make up what i do well and i know you're an xtc fan which was one of my first loves as i entered college yeah and just the idea that one of the things that stuck with me is in their very first albums over the harsh version of punk, whatever that was, doing a lot of little Beach Boys. And and so I'm hearing that you certainly are no stranger to throwing in the Beach Boys gesture here and there, that we've got some of that in here as well. I'm hardly ever thinking about a like an example other than, like I said before, the invisible passenger kind of guy. But like, I don't reference music when I'm making records. I don't sit around and listen to stuff. I know tons of people do that. That's literally how they get, quote unquote, inspired. But of course. I mean, the Beach Boys, it's the first record I ever bought with my own money. I bought Endless Summer, that double LP. I bought it at the bookmobile that came to my elementary school. 
and lost my mind over that early Beach Boys stuff, especially the ballads like The Warmth of the Sun and In My Room. Those just kill me. Did you at least do that kind of emulation and learning how to mix? Like, that's the only time I've directly done that. And that was recommended to me is, you know, when mixing or, or when I'm mastering myself, you probably don't have to master. I don't master myself at this point. I get somebody else to do it, but it would be put through the same speakers. You know, so I would use a black C or something else that seemed to have the same level of guitars as whatever I was mixing and then kind of use that to figure out. Does the snare sound right? Are the guitars too big compared to other things, etc.? So that was the only sort of direct stylistic referencing. I think that's probably a very good idea to do that. I can honestly tell you that I have never done that, um, okay. which is probably one of the reasons why my records, to me, they don't sound like any other record. And that's not always a good thing. There's kind of a, again, like a, that mid-fi thing I talk about. I think in some ways that my records, if I kind of knew more about mixing at the time, that I was mixing it probably could have sounded a ton better and maybe conveyed my point more uh, efficiently. But no, I, I never even think to reference things. I, I have this weird thing where I, I'm suspicious. Also, I've never had a room that's like for mixing. I mix in my room and I mix on speakers what 90% of the time and other 10% is listening on headphones. But in a room that is absolutely ill-equipped to mix in. But I kind of know the sweet spots and I do know what things sound like because I do listen to a lot of music recreationally in that room. So I do know what it sounds like. Ah, so you're not using the special monitor. See, I use the special monitor speakers for mixing that then I would never listen to anything else out of because I want to actually have booming bass when I listen for recreation, but I want to have it to actually hear what's on the recording when I am well, mixing. Exactly. Well, that is the trick, really. I mean, that's why people still, to this day, use Yamaha and S10s. Because the whole joke was, if you can make it sound good on those, then just imagine what it'll sound like on real speakers. <laughs> I gave away my Yamaha and S10s, actually, to pay for the mastering of Make It Be. Ah. I gave them to my mastering engineer. No, I've been using these speakers pretty neutral but they are way more exciting than NS10s. I mean, they just have, they're not scooped like the smile, like the Genelex exciting thing. They are not bright, but they have an incredible low end. I have to always remember that because sometimes I get it sounding right on those speakers and then I put it somewhere else and it's just mid range central. I have the same output, you know, that goes to that speakers go to my regular stereo so I can just switch between them rapidly because I need to do that. Otherwise, actually, I will when listening to the monitoring ones that don't put so much bass on it, I'll find that when I switch to the regular speakers that there's way the hell too much bass. That might be because I'm a bass player natively and I always put too damn much bass. Right, right. You just want to hear that support. <laughs> um, I love mixing and I, I would kill, uh, well, I would maim for a room that was acoustically treated. I'm still a renter at this point in my life and so I can't really do anything structurally to my house. And that's unfortunate because I would I'd tear down half the house and just have build a new studio. At one point, an engineer friend of mine tried to pitch me on like, oh, I'll build you this big thing that is like a, a giant triangular piece of wood. You size it out and you angle it out so that it, it works in that room to, I guess, it's mostly just to suck up all the extra sound. But I'm not, I did not follow up on that. But maybe there's another solution between actually treating all the walls and making a permanent space versus just being able to do something. Mostly I just use near-field speakers and don't worry about it and have somebody else master at this point. Exactly. Well, I've turned one of my bedrooms into like my quote-unquote live room. It's very small. I mean, it's probably 20 by 20, but it's got my kit. It's got about 10 crazy vintage amps and and then all of my guitars on the walls and stuff and my whirly and a bunch of synths. But that room was incredibly alive when I moved in here before I put down any carpet or anything. This is a 1920s house and it has a basement. And that's what I was not used to before because my old place, in fact, the place where I made All Quiet on the Noise Floor and I produced a bunch of records in there, including Daniel Johnston's isn't always was. And then like a bunch of European stuff that I'm super proud of. All done in this place that was a, again, it was just a small room, but it had carpet, but it was a converted garage. So it had nothing underneath. And that is key because no matter what you do to the floor of this place, it's still, there's a resonance and it's because the sound waves are going right through the floor and then bouncing back up off the basement floor. Unfortunately, my basement is in such shambles that it can't be used for anything. So my friend and I just put down carpet on the floor boarded up the windows inside and outside, laid rugs over the walls, staple gunned those down, 
and basically just tried to turn this into like a 70s dead room. <laughs> and it kind of rocks. It kind of rocks really hard. Unfortunately, it's far from soundproof. Like that stuff doesn't really, because I was trying to keep sound from going out because I had issue with one of my neighbors. It's hard to find a perfect situation. And I was so gutted with the only reason I moved from that last place where I made all those records was because it was being demolished by the new um, developer landlords. That room was just magic. I don't know what the deal was. It was like kind of like this radically overbuilt craftsman house. Honestly, I do not know what the deal was. But once you closed all the windows and the front door and you walked about 10 to 20 feet from my front door, you couldn't hear somebody bashing on the drums. And that's without any acoustic treatment. It just yeah. was dead. It was phenomenal. So, yeah, that's where I did all the drums for Make It Be. And to me, I listened to that. And I'm like, I'm very proud of that because it sounds like doesn't sound like it was recorded in a completely not a place to make a record sonically. Yeah, well, unless you're using, we need to have a, to be in a church because we want to get the natural reverb. You know, you're not using natural reverb on anything. I don't like big, huge reverby things. I mean, I, I have spring reverbs, like real ones, and I have cool, like, 70s effect boxes that have very, very cool kind of plate things, and I use those, but I don't, I don't want to have a really live room. I like intimate recording. All right, so now that we've gone into great detail on your your quest for the perfect <laughs> intimate recording setting, let's turn to our third song as an exemplar. It's still a good song, but very different acoustic setup from The Grays from Rochambeau, 1994. The song is Both Belong with some nice acoustic stuff, unlike most of that record that is fairly acoustic-free, but it eventually comes in with the sound that's fairly common to the rest of the, the record. Do you want to say a little about... To introduce about that project and this song in particular? Well, The Grays was the band that I started with John Bryan, a fellow named Buddy Judge, and the drummer Dan McCarroll. Back in 93, I guess we started that. And that was on the heels of my departure from Jellyfish, which uh, was always inevitable because those guys wouldn't really let me write anything in that band. So The Grays was my first time, actually, where I was going to be, if not the primary songwriter... One of two, you know, I mean, there are three of us that wrote songs, but I kind of got, I guess, the focus shifted onto me having the first single. Yeah, Both Belong is, some people say, was the masterpiece on that record. I, I certainly loved that song and, and enjoyed making it. Gesture all the same. He's got his private wars, just like the million other wars that keep you and I from getting where we both belong. Both belong. Cause I see you making eyes with yourself again, shaking hands with invisible friends, looking around for encouragement. No, not me, I'm just hanging, hanging around for a new thrill Cause I'm tired of the old ones And I can't be the only one Who's in life for some sunshine yeah. And baby, you're a tough one But your love has long forgotten how To scratch its way inside your garden Right. 
So I had originally thought that this was a you playing bass and the other two guys playing guitar. I watched some live stuff and you were playing guitar. So this was an instrument switching depending on who is singing what, or were you just guitar in this band? That was kind of the whole point of that band was that, especially with the case of John, Brian, and myself, I mean, we, he and I could play anything, drums, certainly anything stringed and anything with keys. So... The thing about the Greys was it was kind of a flawed concept to begin with because we had all had fairly nasty experiences in prior bands. And so when we all started getting together kind of just as drinking buddies and just talking about Harry Nilsson and just having this kind of camaraderie about the type of music that we're into that wasn't exactly commercially popular at the time, we had decided in our infinite wisdom that we would have a band, there'd be no leader it would be four individuals with equal say and basically an experiment in terror. But we really held on to this concept until it proved itself to be impossible to maintain. And that was when we started making the record. And Jack Puig, who I knew obviously from the Jellyfish stuff, but I just thought Jack was one of the best recording engineers around. And when he came in and started kind of making me the focal point, of the band. He liked my voice the most and he liked my songs the most. So that created this jealousy and these problems while we were making that record. But the point was, whoever song it was, this was our whole manifesto, whoever song it was would be king. Okay. <laughs> you can, it's kind of a little fairy tale vibe here. And they would be able to kind of dictate parts if they had them to the other guys in the band. And if they didn't have them, then your job as the non-king for that song was that you be the best possible sideman that you can be. So this is our whole thing that we developed in various bars in L.A. late at night. In the song Both Belong, you know, I took the role of king pretty seriously. In that band. So I, I was kind of dictating parts on my stuff. And those guys were all great musicians and everybody did put their best foot forward making that record for the most part is it necessarily that you're then sort of putting them together as a group you know in a live setup as opposed to you put down your acoustic part and now somebody's going to do the bass part and since you're probably a better bass player than the other guys anyway then either you're coaching them or well i might as well the hell do this like the only way around that is just to work things out playing as a four piece all together and then for sure everybody can only have one instrument in their hands at a time that's exactly right what you said because i would say the majority of the time that i wasn't playing bass on you know that record everything was recorded live, the four of us, and then, of course, overdubbed on top of that. And I would say probably 50% of that record retains that original core of the four of us playing live. 
but the other 50% has things replaced. And the most, the majority of those things are me replacing whoever else was playing bass. And that was at the strong urging of Jack Joseph Puig because he just thought I was the best bass player around. But I do believe on both Belong, that's John on bass. And that's John and I both doing bubbling Mellotron things in the bridge. There's these weird little like bubbly Mellotron flutes. And pretty sure that's me on all the backgrounds and uh, and me on most of the guitars. Even though you've got three lead quality vocalists, it's just faster for you just to do them all yourself. It's faster and it, it's something that there's just something that changes when you have other textures vocally on a record. And usually that change is a good thing. It's diversity. It broadens the, the spectrum. It makes it sound like a band. You can even, in the Beatles, even if they're harmonizing, well, partly because you know those guys so freaking well. So if it's a less known yeah. band, it's perhaps less effective. But you know that's certainly the ideal. Same with Fleetwood Mac, that you've got really identifiable vocalists. If you're going to sell it as a multi-singer harmony thing, thing like that, and you're not just, uh, you know, of course, if you're live, you take what you can get. Everybody has to, <laughs> everybody gets a mic. The thing about the Greys was we were already totally dysfunctional when we were making that record. So there was a little bit of like, that's mine coming from all of us, especially John and I. I think because we at our core are so similar in that we are both pretty strong multi-instrumentalists and songwriters because we had all these things kind of in common. And then when I started getting kind of more attention during the making of that record, I feel like that just created this rift that got really blown out of proportion. And... By the time we were like making the record and deciding who does what. And I mean, John kind of like disappeared when we were making that record. He kind of like went inward. And I was at a moment in my life where I couldn't be stopped by a tank. I mean, I was like creatively on fire and kind of added all of my stuff to everybody's stuff. But primarily that focus and the, the recipient of my energy was my music. And then also Buddies. I put a lot of energy into the arrangements and the weird little parts on Buddies songs. And um, some of that to John's too. But I just remember John would, he just kind of ducked out. And he opted to record a lot of his stuff all night when we left with the assistant. <laughs> so there you go. That's kind of why some of the stuff is a little bit like we're all just grabbing our own thing and like going, fuck you to everybody else. Because there was a little bit of that really going <laughs> going on. <laughs> Not a great way to make a record, but that's how that was done. So arrangement-wise, these are just synth strings when you get to the end, or did you actually have actual strings? Oh, that's a Chamberlain. Oh, okay. There's Chamberlain all over the record. We had an insane collection of vintage instruments, and it was all pretty much stuff that we owned. We didn't borrow or rent anything. John had a couple of Mellotrons at the time. We had those Baldwin electric harpsichord. We had my Oberheims. We had a mini mo. I mean, we had crazy stuff in there. But yeah, yeah, there's no real strings on that record. It's all us. So any comments on what the song actually means? Making eyes with yourself again, shaking hands with invisible friends, looking around for encouragement. Sounds ego-related. Yeah, I actually would be the last person you could tell you what that song is about. <laughs> okay. um, it's got a lot of imagery. I mean, my whole thing was always, I've never been able to tell a story like Dylan, and I've never been able to just be purely psychedelic, like Sid Barrett or something, but somewhere in between where there is a story, but then there's all this stuff again, kind of pulling at it and adding to it. And there's a level of the abstract that not only allows, but it, it demands that the listener actually connect some dots on their own. So I'm not trying to tell one story in a song, generally speaking. I mean, I kind of started getting more about the story later, but this again, you know, I was 25 years old when I wrote that or 24 and I was just kind of into abstract imagery and wordplay. And there's definitely some things that make sense in that lyric, for sure, especially the verses. Well, even just figuring out like what narratively, like you're calling the person baby, <laughs> you're scolding them in certain ways. One day you'll realize nothing sticks from nothing and go write a book no one ever reads. It's generally critical, but then you're leading off with this man climbs another step and wonders if his life is worth the living he hasn't done much of. The story of this man, which could be you know, a roundabout way of the narrator referring to himself often, but still does, it seems fairly out of place in a elocution to a, a loved one that you're scolding. Well, the baby is towards the same guy. Again, that's the whole thing. A lot of my songs, especially on that record, like I'll step away from this song for a second and refer to the song Spooky, which has 
three protagonists in my mind. There's three people that I'm thinking about. Another example of that is the song from my first solo record, Afraid Himself to Be, which is partially about the singer of Jellyfish and partially about someone entirely different. And sometimes my protagonists are even different sexes. So, so, so it's not a direct story. It's not a clear lyric about one thing. And, um, I guess that's kind of my style if you want to boil it down. And yet your voice is very distinctive and similar. Obviously, you know, we're talking that you've got your falsetto tune that we just talked about. One thing that I, when I got into this writing for a protagonist thing early on is that I would actually just try to do something weird with my voice so that it would be, mm-hmm. I think, you know, this very much Paul McCartney doing stuff in Yellow Submarine and things like that, like that his voice could do four or five different modes, like the Lady Madonna voice sounds like a freaking different person than Monkberry Moondelight. Several other things. And the penny yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, do you find that it's just a matter of the strongest possible vocal, the thing that you're used to is going to be like this consistent when I was just talking to Ken Stringfellow, he was he was referring to his voice as having a, a trumpet like quality. That's kind of how I see yours is as well. It just comes out big and pure. There's not a lot of now we're gonna, you know, do what Sid Barrett diving between different tones and which mostly is always a matter of either you can try to sing really well or you sing on purpose in more of a character voice that is maybe not as traditionally good. Well, that's the funny thing because, you know, we're talking about the fact that a lot of my lyrics don't necessarily have a a straight narrative, but my vocal performance is very consistently kind of sincere. And that's not for any reason other than, I guess I mean it, man. You know, know, I even mean the things that are impossible to explain, but I don't know. A great example of somebody who voice shifts is our Stevie Moore. And another great example is Ariel Pink. I mean, that guy is, I don't know what his real voice sounds like. Let's put it that way. Well, I wonder with our Stevie with, you know, he did falsetto on so much of his old stuff. And now, you know, I hear this recent stuff like stamps and he's just this, like, and this is the way he talks. But then when he's actually talking, during some of these sort of comedy bits on his old album, his voice is still that low. So I'm just wondering, like, that's been his real voice all the time. It's just as you get older, it's hard to do that high, silly thing. Like, eventually, Peter Cetera will sound like that as well. <laughs> Maybe he already does. Right. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I do think the falsetto gets... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I haven't, I haven't really investigated Peter Cetera maybe ever. So, so, but yeah, um, I think that falsetto gets kind of the cobwebs in it as you get older. So I hear, I'm praying that that doesn't happen to me. We'll see. We'll see soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's, uh, vault ourselves towards our final thing from the new album, since that's what we're basically here to promote. Horror show that is written by you, by yourself, according to the liner notes. So how, why is it even on this? The horse show is on the record because the Make It Be had been kind of leaked. And I think Stevie had it up on his website or Bandcamp or something like that. So we made it so much earlier than it actually was released. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think he was just trying to um, make people aware of it. But when we did the deal with Bar None Records, they were like, if you guys have any extra material or anything like that. And I was like, we didn't really have any songs that weren't used but I had fairly recently recorded horror show just as a new song of mine. And I started, the more I thought about it, the more I thought it doesn't totally fit what I want my new record to be. So I just opted to, uh, to chuck that on to uh, make it be as kind of like a, a bonus thing and incentive for people who had already checked out the record that there's something new on it. So you didn't send it to Stevie and say, overdub some stuff. It is not yet perfect. It could have more. He's singing a little bit. He comes in in the very last line of the choruses. And you can, you can hear his voice. And then he goes, Hey, in the bridge, okay. there's, there's these haze. <laughs> and, uh, he just emailed me those probably recorded into his, um, phone. I'm not even sure how he recorded those things, okay. but, uh, and I, I just kind of inserted them into the track. But other than those things, it's all me. He's not down with the FTPing wave files to people <laughs> as, as here's an actual thing. In other words, did he record these things at least against your existing recording? Or are you just saying he recorded them sort of in isolation? You could probably put this somewhere. <laughs> no, no, it was more, more professional than that. Okay. <laughs> no, they were alongside a stereo bounce. 
of the track. All right. It was great because when I sent him the song originally and he's like, oh, man, I got to do something on this. He's like, it's it's like the who or something. He was very excited about it. So that that's always good to hear. Stevie's enthusiasm is probably one of my favorite things to be the recipient of. You know, when he gets excited, you get excited. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. So here's a horror show. Well, thank you so much to Jason Faulkner. That was a pleasant surprise I got to interview him. I would, of course, still love to interview R. Stevie Moore himself, but I'm not sure that's actually going to happen. I would definitely recommend you check out the albums, YouTube clips, whatever you can from both of those fellows, and the collaboration album, Make It Be in particular, very good. Again, that's jasonfaulkner.net to learn about Jason's music. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe to the podcast. Head on over to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. 
We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. And in fact, it would help if you'd go to those places, leave a nice review of the podcast. We have a Facebook page. You can share the individual posts from that for all your friends. You can follow me on Twitter at Mark Lintonmeyer. And of course, check out my other podcast, The Partially Examined Life, for more discussions of all the profound things. And I also want to mention my former musical compatriot, Steve Petrinko, who is my guest back on Nakedly Examined Music Number no. 6, has finally completed his All Bee Gees Covers album, and it is way better than that sounds in the abstract. So I advise you go look him up on CD Baby, order a copy. It is sweet. All right, thanks everybody so much for listening. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lentzmeyer signing off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.